Welcome to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at dtcpod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no-obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. This episode of DTC Pod is also brought to you by Peel Insights, the e-commerce analytics platform that supercharges all of your retention efforts every day and with every customer. Go to peelinsights.com slash dtcpod to learn how hundreds of e-commerce brands use Peel to reveal purposeful insights like LTV, AOV, repurchase rate, churn, and hundreds of metrics more. See how brands are nurturing deeper customer relationships with easy-to-use retention tools that hyper-target and provide immediate growth. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC pod? Today we're joined by Roy Rubin, who's the co-founder and CEO of Magento, as well as a founding partner of R-Squared Ventures. So Roy, I'll let you kick us off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what you built with Magento, and then maybe we can get into some other questions about some of the projects you're working on now. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Ramon and, uh, and Blaine, really happy to be here. Um, so yeah, Magento, you know, uh, the story is that um, I was a student at UCLA and I had no money and I had some programming skills. So I started to do some freelance work uh, focusing on open source e-commerce. This is pre-Magento. And, you know, the market was really evolving. This is like 2001, 2002. And I was focusing on what was then expected to be a growing e-commerce industry, right? <laughs> it's kind of funny to think 20 years back, but, you know, you know, stores were just coming online and, and, and folks are trying to figure how to do that. Um, and there were really two alternatives, right? One was, was open source. And the other was, you know, these million dollar software products, you know, brought to you by Oracle and Microsoft and some other big companies. And as a freelancer, I only had access to the open source, obviously. And I felt very comfortable in servicing that world. So started really doing freelance, built up a small consultancy, which, which actually grew fairly quickly because demand for bringing stores online was something that was, uh, <laughs> was pretty clear, right? Um, and these were the early days of Google ads. I'd place an ad for um, open source e-commerce services, and I would generate enough business for six months within like a day or two, and I would shut down the ad. 
right? Because I'm like, I can't take more work. It's, it's just impossible for me to do that. So that services, little freelance services gig grew to about, you know, 25, 30 full-time people while still at UCLA. Um, and that was fun because one, I was able to pay my rent and I actually made, made good money doing that. And that was a lot of fun. And I got to see, I was there really, you know, in the front lines to see what merchants of, to, you know, of today at that time and the future were really thinking about, right? How do they think about their brands? How do they think about the digital experience? Um, you know, how they were continuing to innovate, you know, along those lines. And we were just there to have a front seat and have these really interesting conversations with a lot of smart people. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the genesis story for Magento. We, 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 we had a great services company and, um, you know, ultimately I think we got a little bored of servicing clients and we had this aspiration as a company and myself, you know, of course, as well to go build a product. Um, these were kind of the early days. I haven't, I haven't shared this a lot, but like 37 signals were just like the big thing back then. And they had, you know, all these mantras and sort of this interesting perspective about life and about business and about work. And I said, I want to be like these guys. Um, and, and I was, you know, for a while I was thinking what to go build. Um, uh, it wasn't all that clear, to be honest. I thought everything was already done <laughs> internet days. Yeah. This is 2005, right? We were just the beginning. Um, but, you know, I knew that there was an opportunity to kind of innovate on the open source model. Um, and this was sort of the heyday of open source as well, especially the commercial open source models where a lot of um, um, companies, you know, in the space, MySQL, and, and there were many others that were getting funded. And there was a big acquisition. MySQL was uh, acquired at the time for a billion dollars by Sun, which was like, wow, people can make money in this open source world. Um, you know, but nobody was really doing this for commerce. So that was always sitting in the back of our head. Um, and I think we finally, you know, at some point made the decision to say, look, what, what will this new generation platform look like? And that was sort of the catalyst for thinking about developing what ultimately became Agento. And I had the smart engineer on, on my team who was just getting bored. And I knew I couldn't lose him. And I also knew that I had this really interesting project that I, I wanted somebody to help me think through. And we put him on it and we said, look, go figure this out. Go build what you think is sort of that next gen platform. Here's a few things we think are going to be meaningful. Um, and, and, you know, he came up with something and we, and we loved it. Um, and we decided to double down on it double down on it to the point where we said, we're going to fire all of our customers now. We're going to no longer service clients and we're going to go build this really great product. And, you know, I figured that's the only way to do that because when you're running a services company, many, um, and maybe, you know, a number of your folks in the audience also run services companies. It's really hard to build a product from a services company because you're always, thinking about splitting resources and priorities and you have customers that, you know, need to be served and ultimately expect value. Right. Um, and it's just really hard to, to, to kind of split that. So the only way that I could figure out how to do it was to fire all of my customers. That's one way to do it. 
Um, and, you know, luckily we got it done. How did you recruit those first 20 to 30 people if you were still in school? I mean, was this your friends, right? People with potentially no experience previously. So um, I did hire people with experience, PHP experience, right? So, you know, I, a lot of them were freelancers from different parts of the world. Um, eventually hired some people in LA. I found um, my CTO and my ultimately my co-founder in Magento at UCLA. Um, we were introduced by a friend and he's brilliant. He was a computer science major at the time. And he, he joined me as my first hire in LA. And on the services side, he worked for me, but he was so great and brilliant that we decided to partner up. And as we were building Magento and sort of creating this new company, he came in as a co-founder in, um, in Magento. But you're right, it's tough. I mean, I had to go to school during the day and then come back in the afternoons and an evening and like go figure it out, right? And, and start to service clients and make sure they're happy. And, um, you know, I did that because I had to pay rent, right? I mean, ultimately I didn't have anything. So this was sort of my way of just kind of making sure that my life is taken care of. Um, and Roy, Roy yeah. one question just to, to jump in there for a second. What, uh, for, for our listeners who, who may not be as familiar with Magento or what you guys were, what, um, how, how things were in the landscape at the time, how, do, how did you guys differentiate your product? What was available out there? So if you were going to launch an e-commerce store, right? And, and like you said, you were building kind of a purpose-built database for um, these sort of merchants. What was, what was out there for them? What would they currently use? And how did you realize that by productizing it, you would be able to, you know, carve out a, a nice little niche, niche part of the marketplace? Yeah. So, you know, as far as what's, you know, what was available at the time, it was really sort of like old school open source packages that were really difficult to scale, really difficult to customize. Every little bit was a fork in the code. Um, it was just messy and ugly, right? Because this is, this is all pre-cloud guys, right? So this is very different from a technology stack than what we know of as, you know, uh, as of now. Um, so open source was, one, was, was really one option. The other option was enterprise. Right. There was really nothing else. There were free prepackaged solutions, I think, for Microsoft um, servers. I mean, this, is, this is so dating me, but like Microsoft servers, right? So like ASP or VB or, you know, uh, ASP.NET. I mean, all the stuff that was very Microsoft-centric that I never cared about. Um, but those were out there. But those, again, were on the fringe. They weren't common, right? They were really limited to a few folks that had this Microsoft-centric knowledge. Um, but open source was, you know, open source was evolving and growing at the time. So we kind of rode the tailwind of this open source story. But um, what was different about what we had, you, you know, one was, was really this breadth of knowledge around how commerce was done in a very modern, well, at the time, modern time, right? So we did, you know, really innovative things like, um, we had, you know, all the inter you know, internationalization built in, so multi-currency um, kind of all built in. You could have multiple sites on a single implementation, multiple brands on a single implementation. You could really leverage the technology very efficiently. Um, no limits as far as customizations on the front end. That was a very big thing because every single project we do on the services side, customers would tell me we have a unique design. We have unique requirements for what our brand really needs. 
So, you know, we obviously took that in mind and said, look, when merchants launch their websites, they're very sensitive about the way the site looks and feels. So we built an entire sort of template engine um, and gave full flexibility in a way that could be extended quite easily without having to incur, you know, real um, friction, you know, around technology debt and, and sort of um, complexity around that. Um, the product was incredibly modern back then. It, like it blew people away. I mean, this is part of why Magento did so well because people did not understand how in the world this product was open source and free, right? We actually had a full-time UI UX designer. Like what open source product had a UI UX designer back then, right? It was all like command line stuff, right? We actually said, hey, people are going to care about how this looks. Um, so everything we did just had a high degree of touch and finish to it because we knew that if we could tell the story and have a product that looked like an enterprise level offering, but give it, but give it away for free, the market would, would be very interested. And the way that we brought it to market was, was a bit creative at the time in that, you know, we started sharing, um, wireframes on our blog that had a big following by then and said, Hey, here's what we're building. Give us input. And I would have a hundred comments, 200 comments on every single post I do of people saying, Hey, here's how we do this in Australia. And here's how we do this in Europe. Here's what you need to think about. And it like the community really helped us build this product. Um, we were extremely, you know, transparent. I didn't keep anything under guard. Everything was done in the open, which today happens maybe, you know, in some cases, but back then nobody did this. Um, and I'd have three to four blog posts every single day, like religiously, like that was how we told our story. And before we released the product, we had this massive following already. So when the product was released, it was just like a slam dunk from day one. So th this was the, the original build in public, huh? I guess, you know, I never thought about it. And I, you know, I've talked about this a lot, but I've never said that before or, or, or heard that. But you're right. We did do this in public. We just didn't call it that. We just said, hey, we want feedback. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. This is, it's, it's exactly what it is. And, and what was the, because um, I know you said you wanted to take it open source and you had this business where you had to kind of get rid of all the people and all the services layer that you guys were providing in order to pursue it. So what was the, uh, the revenue model in, in the early days for it? What, where, how did you guys make money? You said you were going to be able to start giving it away for free. How, what was the kind of game plan there? Did you raise or did you have a, a different game plan? You're going to love this because, um, because I didn't really have a revenue model in mind. I knew that I had an amazing product and we had, um, we had a massive following, you know, in the market, but we were weeks away from shutting down the business, which is crazy. Like you have this incredible product. Everybody loves it. It's the talk of the town. It's the newest thing on the market. And I was like, oh, holy shit. Like, I, I guess I should have thought about that closer. Um, but no, I, you know, what, what was always in my mind was, was to say, look, like we'll provide support for the product and a level of sort of um, relationship with our customers that if you're using the product, obviously it's mission critical and you'll need some engagement with the vendor. I mean, otherwise, who's going to support you? Um, 
but here's what I didn't take into account. That we were by, the, by then a great product company, but a not so great support company. And I also didn't take into account that a lot of my, um, my partners at the time, sort of agencies, were so smart and so good that they ended up providing a better level of support than we could ever do. And almost overnight, when I released the support products, I had competitors. My partners competed against me because I think they, um, they understood that there's a business here to support people. And that's what they, that's what they do anyway. So why not? Right. Um, so I was pissed at first because I said, crap, like I have no way to monetize this now. But I also understood that, you know what, there may be something good here because we're never going to be as good as, you know, as good as these guys are. Like that is their core business. You know, I came from the agency side, right? So it's like, I got it. Immediately I got it. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. Like we're, 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 we're product business now. My team doesn't want to do support. I have to figure out how to, you know, how to do that. But there's guys out there that, you know, are really strong at that. And that's what they know how to do. So um, we, we decided, you know, early on, once we sort of understood what was happening, to pivot a bit from a business model perspective and and offer an enterprise offering. So in commercial open source, this was, this was very common at the time. The same product can have two license strategies. One would be free and open source under a GPL type license. The, uh, the same product can be dual licensed under a different license as well, under a commercial license. So what we did is we, we had a, we had a dual license strategy for the core product and for our enterprise customers, we would provide to them a set of capabilities that was not available in the open source product. So additional capabilities, additional extensions, you know, think about this in the Shopify app store world, additional apps that we wrote that specifically filled some gaps that the product had that you could not get in the free and open source product. And we package all of that up and called it a commercial enterprise offering. And just for, for the audience to have some context, that when you say support, it's not like necessarily just answering questions of customer support. It's probably like technical support, hands-on help that the agencies are probably best suited to to help with. Is that right? Yeah, it's like, like hey, your I'm team for that support. Yeah. It, it's not product usage because we had a lot of um, sort sort of self-serve and, and, you know, we did screencasts and just, we, we, we had a ton of content that explained how to use the system and be, and be efficient at it. And that was given away for free. We're talking about things like, Hey, I'm trying to customize and add this button to the page and, and have it do X, Y, and Z. And something is not happening. Right. What is the issue? Right. And I thought we would have this unique vantage point right, where we would immediately understand what the problem is and be able to fix it quickly, right, or, or give the, you know, a resolution to the customer. You know, ultimately, when this came back to our team, and this is why we kind of weren't great at it, is that we had to do a lot of work to figure it out, right, because it was a very complex product. The agencies who were in the code base the entire day, like, they got it right away. So it was really hard. I think in hindsight, it was smart for us to pivot. We created a great enterprise business, you know, which ultimately sold, you know, tens of millions of dollars or, you know, I mean, ultimately probably over a hundred million dollars of enterprise sales um, um, for the product. But um, 
you know, it, it, it wasn't clear on day one that this would be where we, you know, would end up. Yeah. So when, when you went out to market and started selling it, you have weeks of runway. So now the concern becomes, okay, we're selling it, but now we have to grow faster than what we're burning capital. I assume that was the case, right? You guys started growing just much but faster remember, than Remember what's expected. happening. The product continues to grow independently of us, even if we shut down the company at the time. We would still see billions of dollars transact on Magento, right? So the question for us is, 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 is how do we create enough revenues uh, and do so quickly enough to be able to continue to mature the product, fix the issues that we have, build additional components and capabilities. Um, but the product was sort of, sort of had its life already in motion by being open source. Um, and Got that's it. what and we did. You know, as soon as we started to kind of scale, we began offering additional capabilities and services and really maturing the product. So Roy, what was it like then uh, once you guys figured out, you clearly were like, okay, we need to monetize this. We need to start putting things into action. You've decided that the best channel to go is enterprise. Um, what was it like? How did you how did you go from there into like growing this into a massive company over the next call it, you know, four or five years? Once you guys realize that you're like, okay, let's we're going to start generating revenue. Here's our go-to-market. Here's what we're doing on the enterprise level. What was the next path? What did it look like? Why don't you just characterize the next phase of growth for the company for the listeners? Yeah, I think, look, I think commerce matured fairly quickly, right? So now we're at 2006, 2007. So commerce matures very quickly. It, you know, every retailer out there has a website. D2C isn't quite a term that we, we hear of quite, quite yet, you know, at the time. Um, you know, but but I think you know the reality that 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 commerce continues to grow, um, you know, is upon us, right? Um, and um, we just can you know get continuously pulled upstream. We work with larger and larger brands. We you know we have to build the infrastructure to do so, right? So from an enterprise sales model um, to now professional services. So so you know for some of our key strategic accounts, you know, we provide some layer of um, you know of professional services, agency type services. Um, we began building these very complex partner programs and, and, you know, start to work with really interesting, um, you know, uh, agencies from across the world. Um, the business just matures and grows, you know, at the time we had over 300 agency partnerships. Um, you know, um, I think we measured, uh, I mean, at some point we surveyed and, 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 and did some analysis where we were driving over a billion dollars in service revenues for our partners. Um, we saw very little of that, if, if like almost nothing. Um, but we were happy because you know what was happening was that the market was maturing and people were really, you know, um, seeing a lot of opportunities for revenue, um, you know, and do so on top of our product, right? Which was which which created this flywheel, and you know, great tailwinds for this, for, you know, for the story and this company to continue to grow and evolve. Um, but everything happened pretty organically. For us, um, you know, again, a great product at the right time in the market that painted, you know, a vision, you know, and a story that I think people loved. We gave a great product away for free. I mean, you know, oftentimes people ask me, like, how do you sort of explain the success of Magento? I, I you know, I point to the story of, look, you give a great product away for free, people are going to love it. Like, it's, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> but... It's it's hard to monetize when you do that. So you know, be ready to figure out how to do that pretty efficiently. Um, it took us years, but you know, but ultimately the business caught up, and we were able to really, 
you know, build, you know, sustainable growing business. And how long were you, how long were you there? Right. So I know you said we started, you started this in like the early two thousands. And so what was your trajectory with the company as, you know, one of the co-founders and CEOs, like where, how long were you with the company? And at what point did you say that you, you were ready to move on to new adventures in your career? So I, you know, I, I started the services business in 2001 you know, that ultimately transitioned to Magento around 2006, 2007. And I sold the company to eBay in 2011, where I was still running Magento for three years up until 2014. Right. So for me, this wasn't an overnight story. This was really 2001 to 2014. Um, you know, and I came back, actually, I came back in 2016 when Magento was spun off. eBay spun off at the time a number of businesses, PayPal. Uh, being, of course, uh, it, it, uh, it took it public, um, but it spun off a number of, um, you know, of businesses, including Magento. And I came back on the board in 2016 before we sold it again to Adobe in 2018. Um, so, you know, I, I spent a great, you know, almost my entire career, right, in, in, in this Magento story. Um, and it was amazing. And... Um, what was it like to join a corporation after, you know, building Magento and now just like being changed completely in terms of the structure and, and how you make decisions and operate? Yeah, not easy. Not easy. You know, we we were a very entrepreneurial company. Um, we were, you know, aggressive. You know, we, we, we wanted to conquer the world. We had big dreams and we felt that we were executing really well. Um, we were very innovative. We could make decisions on the fly, and you know we we felt like we we had the right team and the right incentives, you know, aligned with the team to actually, you know, execute and deliver on it. And you know, coming into a much larger corporation, eBay, um, I think is the exact opposite of that. So you know, decisions became slower, and you know there was much less risk taking, and we, we you know we take all the risks in the world because we had high conviction, right? So when I fired all of our customers back in the day in the services world to go build product, um, you know, we, you know, just shows how much risk we're willing to take if we believe something is, you know, needs to happen. Right. And I think that, you know, when you come into a larger organization with very different incentives, with very different priorities, with people that have been there for years and they're thinking about their next role more than they are about innovation, um, you know, those are things that for, you know, a person like me at the time or for any innovator or entrepreneur out there is, is probably going to be very difficult to, you know, to do. There are, you know, better organizations out there that I think understand this DNA and, and certainly want to drive value from it. eBay wasn't one, to be honest, right? It was, it was a struggle. Um, and we fought hard to keep what we had and what we believed was 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 still very relevant in the market. Um, remember also at the time, this is the cloud sort of evolution, right? Cloud comes on the scene at some point here. And we see this and we're actually doing something about it, right? In fact, I was, you know, at the time that we sold the company in 2011, we were on the cusp of yet again transforming the company into a cloud company, sort of taking baby steps. But, you know, I knew that, you know, I had a window of, you know, a year or two to make this happen, right? Begin to deliver Magento in the cloud. Um, 
and then we come into you know eBay and that put the brakes on it. I mean, although they were actually very excited about it, they just had other priorities um, ahead of it, and uh, we kind of missed out on that opportunity, which I think led to Shopify's growth. I mean, it would have happened independently of this, but you know, Shopify, I think, obviously um, uh, took advantage of the tailwinds of cloud and you know did so amazingly well and. Um, yeah. Talk, talk, talking about Shopify for a second, um, you know, obviously having left, like left kind of, you said you left in 2010 before or 2011 or so, and then you came back and you were involved kind of at the board level after it went through acquisition. Do you think, think, could you guys have built out similar products to what Shopify was doing? Had you got, had you been, still like full focus building it or do you think it was just built differently in a different evolution of, of product? Um, no, I, I, you know, I do think so if Magenta would have remained independent, I think the landscape would have been different. Um, it would have been different because, you know, a lot of what Shopify's built app store and all of that, we had, we actually had that years before, right? So if you look at, I mean, we, we, we called it Magento connect. Okay. But the Magento connect ecosystem had apps in it dating back to maybe 2008, 2009. In fact, Magento was built, if I'm not mistaken, I have to look back, but I think Magento 2008 was already built with an app store, our first, our first version, right? We, we knew that, you know, this would be important. Um, Magento had a mobile story from, you know, from the first iteration of the iPhones, right? From the first iPhone app store, we already had the ability to actually build apps, mobile apps, mobile commerce apps, you know, on top of Magento. Um, so, we were, you know, we knew where the market was going and we understood that, you know, things have dramatically changed with the, um, the growth of the cloud. Um, we launched our first iteration, which, you know, intentionally we did so um, with the smallest of Magento's client base. Uh, the product was called Magento Go. We invested a lot in what we call the Magento Go platform, which was going to be our platform as a service offering. Um, it wasn't great um, at our first iteration. I never got to our second because we sold the company. Um, but you know, when I think back ten years, it's about ten years um, since since a lot of this was relevant, um, and I see you know sort of the evolution today. Nothing surprises me because we all thought about that back then, right? I mean, even the shop app today is something we talked about back in 2006, 2007. I mean, this is all stuff that's been around the table forever. I haven't seen anything that I would say, holy crap, this is truly like jaw-dropping new and innovative. Um, the execution is, is, is done very well today, but the ideas have been circulating for a very long time. It just shows how important of a factor the timing is, which is an element that you mentioned earlier, which, you know, what's the timing for magento at that time and then there was a timing for the cloud and so now 2018 you sell and then what is the timing for then what what happens then what do you venture into it's a really good question um because i think about it a lot right i think about these these new models you know right so on-premise cloud mobile right what's next i and i don't know right it's I guess it's never clear when you're on the cusp of it. Um, you know, I have to tell you though, I, 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 I do think a lot of what we're seeing now in the AI world, like is super interesting, right? 
And it feels like there's a new platform here, right? It feels like there's new innovative models that could be built on top of this. I agree. Like anything that can help um, make the speed of iteration faster um, and the rate of deployment of things and testing um, that, that, that accelerated, it's probably what is the next phase. I couldn't really see that very much with Web3 because it was so tied to just finance and payments, but it didn't really just like impact the rate and speed of innovation, whereas I actually feel like this is happening here. So I think it's, it's, it, we're entering a, an interesting and exciting phase now. Yeah, and, and I've looked at you know, Web3 and and the blockchain and crypto, but I, I just, I, I can't put my finger on this stuff. Like I, it's just, it's like elusive. I, I don't get it, right? I mean, I try to get it. I think I get some of it. <laughs> yeah. But w- when I try to explain it to anybody, I get, I get lost. And I'm like, I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if this makes sense. Like if I, I can't convince, my, you know, convince myself every other day that this is real. Um, yeah. But I have a lot of smart friends that are doing, you know, incredible things in this, in this world. And I hope they're successful, you know, but ultimately... When I look at the AI stuff, and I've, I've spoken with with you know a good number of companies that are doing something in this space, um, I you know I begin to to imagine a different world, right? And 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 I'm curious about it, and I can see how things are going to change, and and you know um, it's funny because my son comes home last night. He's he's 13, and we sit down on his math homework, and at the end he's like, oh, I'm gonna like he's 13, okay. He's like, oh, I'm going to start doing my essays on GPT-3. I'm like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> how do you already know about this? He's like, TikTok. I'm like, yeah, they're, they're showing wow. exactly how to do this. And I said, okay, That's gonna well. going to change academics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I had this other conversation yesterday. And I said, well, look, we're, you know, as humans, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're continuously pushed to use our best resource, right? Which is like, I guess, you know, we, you know, we used to do, a lot of like manufacturing kind of you know work with our with our hands now there's machinery you know industrial revolution machinery comes along we're we're continuously pushed towards adding value where we are uniquely positioned to do so and you know um, and not machines but that line is getting really thin like how much more can we be pushed into adding value if machines can actually do so more effectively and at scale than us and i think we're it feels like we're very close yeah i mean it it feels like we're really close and i think you know what we've seen so far in the ai space it's like you've had a couple companies that came out and productized things on top of open ai which has been really interesting but those are kind of the more generic use cases and then i think the entrepreneurs are able to like really identify uh core needs and core use cases that can use the ai to help them scale whatever their product service etc is are really gonna um, be able to tap into those markets. But like, like you were saying, it's kind of like the tech, it's like, it, it doesn't really work. And then all of a sudden it starts to do it. And you're kind of, you're, we're kind of seeing that cusp right now. And Ramon, I know you're, you guys are working on some really, really cool stuff in that space with trend as well. That's going to totally change the way, um, that content is, is served to brands. Yeah. It, it reminds you of what Roy mentioned earlier when he said, you know, when they were thinking about like what to build in the early days of, of the web and you thought everything's already being built. Um, it's, it's the same application here where you go on Twitter, you see everything AI and you think everything's already being built, but truly the innovation comes from like inward discoveries. The moment you guys stopped looking 
looking for what can we build outside um, and you found it inside. Um, that's when like Magento was born. And I think that it's what Blaine just said that the best applications and use cases are going to come from people that like can literally implement this into whatever workflows, whatever problems they currently have. Rather than, you know, by the time you see one of these things on Twitter, there's already like a hundred being built. Now you have no code. It's open source, right? Um, like anyone can find this on, on open AI. Um, but, but I certainly think it's exciting. So hundred percent. Um, okay. So maybe, maybe your kid is now going to be the one with 30 to 50 employees before even getting to, to UCLA following your paths. No, but but it's it's you know it's it's crazy because you know you think about this right it, it's it's only like two weeks old or three weeks old right this GPT three and all all the kids know about it um, if you know if my child knows I'm assuming everybody already knows so the question is you know how does education change you know it's it's uh, it's kind of interesting to think about this right because I said I I said to him I said you know what probably when they invented the pocket calculator somebody said the same thing right. This isn't fair. Technology is going to ruin you. You're never going to learn math. But yet we figured out how to learn math with a pocket, you know, with a pocket calculator. You know, I, I guess we could do the same now with GPT-3 on the side, um, you know, in our back pocket. Um, but but it feels like there's look there's there's change. I know there's some you know other stuff in their pipeline that's coming out. I mean, we're still we're we're going to be blown away by all this stuff. The question is, you know, can we build interesting companies and businesses on top of it that add value? Right, because all this stuff is is going to be a commodity. Um, Absolutely, the, the so, tech is the commodity. So, yeah, I'm curious. You, um, you know, you have your fund R Squared Ventures. How, you know, you you've had all this experience selling the company, going back, selling again. You've seen it all. How has that shaped your lens for what you look for, what opportunities you find interesting, and, and what is R Squared Ventures about and, and your guys' thesis and, and what you find interesting? Yeah, so R Squared Ventures is an early stage fund that I uh, started with a very close friend of mine um, by the name of Roy Ares, hence R Squared, Roy and Roy. Um, and he's an incredible entrepreneur. He started Loop Commerce. He's actually a 10-year VC turned entrepreneur. Uh, and back now in in the in the investing world, but um, but but it's a partnership of two. We're an early stage fund, um, and we um, you know typically co-invest with 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 great other funds um, in in you know in the earliest um, stage of companies where you know where we can come in, uh, focused on fintech, on commerce, marketplaces, and um, you know enabling SaaS. Um, look, we were looking for you know teams that not only have i think a great product and technology acumen you know really understand what they're building and who they're building it for but also have you know a side uh, um you know of them that understands the go-to-market you know pretty pretty well um you know, and we've learned over time, right? We have some amazing, you know, technology companies in our portfolio, strong technology teams with, you know, with, you know, that, that sort of have that, but don't have the, the go to market. We have great go to market folks and with, you know, phenomenal sales acumen that just need some work on product. Um, but I think the best teams that, that sort of um, shine are, are the teams that have both of these worlds kind of figured out. Um, you know, funny because I'm hearing, you know, an investor saying I want everything, but Ultimately, we want you know founders that have, I think, curiosity, 
you know, and, you know, and some level of experience, right. Um, you know, and how to build product and take it to market. Um, we've made from the fund so far about 20 investments across both of our funds, fund one and fund two. We started about two years ago. Um, and we were very active for the first year. And then obviously the market took a turn this, you know, in, in 22 here. So we, you know, we slowed down a bit or a lot, I would say. Um, but we're, we're excited to get going in 2023. Um, we are operators, both my partner and I. We've both built companies and sold companies. So a lot of the value that we bring to the founders that we support, you know, is sort of rolling up our sleeves and really helping them, you know, as they see fit across product and technology and go to market and sales and culture and how to scale and build up a team. You know, we're very different than most VCs in that, you know, if, if you're just looking for capital, we're probably not the best partner for you. But if you're looking for capital that can really help, um, you know, your team and, you know, and you as a, you know, as a, as a founder or co-founding team, um, really take advantage of the experience that we have. We're, you know, we're happy to do that. And that's what we do. We spend a lot of time with the founders that we back and really, really, you know, act as an extension to the founding team. And we love it. I mean, that's what really drives us. Roy, what, what, how's that been for you, right? Like, because you've gone from the position of um, owning, operating your own company for several, several years. I'm sure you, through your career, you've been able to see and interact with other founders, entrepreneurs. So what's, what's the experience been like working with, uh, with companies being on their side and being able to see growth happen across a whole portfolio of amazing companies? I have to tell you, it's been really rewarding. It's, 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 it's been awesome. It's been just so much fun, right? Because you, you see a lot of the potential, you see a lot of the energy, um, you know, we've, we've got some phenomenal founders that are building amazing products. Um, and, you know, you come in, you, you help solve a problem, you help, you help them take something off their chest. Um, and for me, it's great because, because I get to have a sane life. I, I keep saying, I, are we doing video on this podcast? Because what I want to say is I lost all my hair, you know, with, with Magento. Right. I'm losing a little bit less here. And I mean, it doesn't like to lose it more, but, um, you know, but look, being an entrepreneur is hard. Right. And, you know, and the fact that I can have a life with my children and and get to know them again and, you know, spend time with them and be there for them um, is, uh, you know, is for me, you know, really important these days. Right. When I was building Magento and, and it was just it was all about that. And I was fully immersed and there was nothing else in my life. You know, when I left Magento, it's interesting. I, I I found myself with no friends and no hobbies, right? Because all I knew was just to go build this company. So it's a little, you know, it's a little known secret. I've had many, many friends over the years that sold their companies call me and say, what do we do now? Right? Because there's no, like, you don't have time for hobbies. You don't have time to, like, really have friends. You, you have colleagues. You know, you get drinks with some folks. But, like, these aren't lifelong friends, Right? So that's important to me now. Maybe I'm older and I'm starting to sound a bit old, but, um, but those are things that, that for me are, are, you know, are important. Um, great friends, great family, you know, enjoying life and, and, and really spending time with great people. And we have that in the founders that we back. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think it, it is so important to be able to see that, especially as you're like so heads down building your company and it's kind of like you pop up, like you're saying, and you're like, oh my God, there's there's so much more to do. So I'm, we're, we're super pumped for you that you're able to be able to work with great founders and, and do all that. So 
Um, you know, my one of my last questions before we wrap up here is so clearly you're working with amazing founders who are building really cool companies. But what about you? Like, what are, are you working on any projects? Are there any other projects that excite you personally in the future uh, beyond just in investing and advising? Or, or how do you think about the next phase of, of yourself as a builder? You know, so what we do as well in the fund, um, you know, given that Roy and I are both operators and we still have this sort of muscle in our in our body that, that still looks at opportunities. Um, sometimes when teams come to us and they're not fully baked um, and they don't have, you know, they're missing something, right? Uh, and, and, and we can't back them for, you know, for some reason, right? They don't have tech or they don't have product um, or they just don't have kind of everything figured out neatly yet. We, we look at these teams where I think most VCs would pass on them and we say, look, and we actually do something here, right? Um, so, you know, we see this as an incubation opportunity where we actually add a lot more value and roll up our sleeves and spend you know, a great deal of time with these teams. Um, and we did one last year where we brought it to life. Um, and that is a company called Book Outdoors, which is um, really the first attempt to build a booking.com-like experience, an OTA experience for the professionally managed campgrounds. And I say professionally managed because we're not going after peer-to-peer. -peer. We're going after those RV parks and tent campgrounds that have professional management. Um, believe it or not, there's no aggregation happening in that world. You don't have a booking.com um, product in that world. You literally have to go to Google, search, make a phone call, write an email, send a letter, right? All these like old school stuff, sort of pre-digital almost. Um, and we know this, or, you know, you, you know, I know this from firsthand account. I have an RV. And for me to actually book an RV campground in a trip that I take with the kids, well, they're, they're a bit older now, so they're giving me a fight not to go anymore. But when they were younger, I took them all the time. And it's like, it's such a pain in the ass, right, to actually do this. So I knew this as a consumer. I had a team come to me. It wasn't fully baked. And we sort of were able to now build a company around it and have have a great story there that we're, you know, continuing to build. Um, so that's, that's that, you know, we also almost had one more done and, you know, ultimately decided not to do it, but we're, we're looking for teams that we can partner with and add value to that, you know, are missing something and, and they're having a hard time maybe, maybe, you know, um, completing the picture. I think oftentimes we could do that for them and help them. Sweet. Uh, we're, we're super excited to, to keep up with not only you, but all the companies that you're backing. I was going through the portfolio. I know um, we've had Furnish on the pod as well. Uh, that's one of their companies um, as well as Upside. And so anyway, congrats on all the success so far. We're excited to see what what you continue to get involved in. Cause I know myself and I know Ramon knows as a builder, you're just always excited to like get your hands dirty and keep building. Right. So, um, really excited for that. Thanks for coming on the pod. And then for our listeners, where can they connect with you? Learn more about you personally, R squared, if you want to just give your socials a shout out. Yeah. So Roy Rubin on LinkedIn and Twitter. I think it's Roy Rubin 05 on Twitter. Um, and uh, and just roy.ribbon at gmail.com. If there's any, you know, anyone out there that needs um, to chat, we'd love to do that. Thanks so much, Roy. Thank you, Thank Roy. you guys. I appreciate it.
Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and a review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.